Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 47 in our series for 2014. And today's date is Friday the 5th of December. And Leon, what's on the uh, menu for this week? Well, we've got a great interview with Nick Austin. Nick Austin is the founder of Divi, which is a website that enables people and businesses to rent out car spaces. That makes better use of spaces in our cities and urban areas and it's founded on the concept of collaborative consumption which was made famous by businesses like uber and airbnb yeah that's right and in a sense uh, where you're buying um using a wide resource in uber to move around uh this one divi is uh, using wide resource to stay in a place that's right and then we're going to have a chat with economist francis gray about uh the recession in japan and uh, what's going to happen there and uh, then we took all the news but first of all let's have a chat with nick austin nick austin tell us about divi okay well divi's a uh platform essentially that allows people that have vacant car spaces um, to list them on the platform and commuters who need parking in those areas to search the platform and, and book those spaces at the touch of a button. Well, it's a bit like um, collaborative consumption businesses like Uber and Airbnb then. Exactly. Basically, it's it's using technology to improve the utilisation of, of things, so whether they be a car or a car space or a room in, in someone's house. Um, and I guess the benefits that flow on from that are people get uh, more choice um, and typically they get, with technology, a better service and lower costs. So how much uptake have you had? Oh, we've had a lot of interest. Um, so we've completed over uh, 250,000 book parking days so far. Um, we have um, a growing number of members uh, week on week. Uh, we are predominantly based in Sydney at the moment. Uh, but we see ourselves launching in, in Melbourne in the next week or so, followed by Brisbane, Perth, and we expect to be in all the major CBD areas in Australia over the next six months. Nick, how, what, what's the model? I mean, do you go around and canvas people in the suburbs and in the city and whatnot? How do you assemble the parking spots to then market? Okay, so uh, we have... There's two, two types of markets, I guess. There's the individuals that have... Uh, a spare car space that w- because they don't own a car or they may just drive to work every day so that car space sits vacant. Uh, essentially, uh, they um, w- are looking to, to rent their place and they would um, search on, the, on the, the internet on how to do that and we've grown it organically by people just coming to our site and listing their spaces. We've also done a little bit of PR in some of the local papers uh, and we've done um, a couple of uh, letterbox drops just to make people in certain areas aware of our service. Um, and then the, on the other hand, we have uh, clients uh, such as large property trusts, which may have anywhere from 100 to 1,000 spaces sitting vacant across their portfolios, and we work with them to list spaces in the area where we know demand is. And so when did you start, and how long has it taken to build the market? Uh, we started about three years ago. Uh, it's taken a while to build the market, and I guess like any new business, particularly doing something that's a little bit different, um, building a brand, building trust, um, it's a reasonably complex business model in that we have a dual-sided market, so we're connecting two individuals together with slightly different needs and wants and trying to standardise that process so it's efficient and scalable. But we've found now that we've, uh, we're in a, a very good spot, actually, where 
there is a big push in cities, not just in Australia, but also around the world, to use technology to make better use of of assets um, and smarter buildings becoming more of a, a trend in smarter cities. So we see um, a lot of lot of upside from here, um, and we're starting to invest a lot in technology to to make sure that we're on the front foot with that that trend that's happening at the moment. So if I want to lose out my car car, park, car parking space, how much would how much could I get? Um, it depends on the area. So it's it's like any real estate; it's location based. So somewhere. Um, in Sydney City, um, depending where the um, where the, the car space in, is in the city, could be anywhere from uh, $55 a week to $100 a week. Um, around North Sydney, um, anywhere from 55 to probably 80 or $90 a week. Uh, so it really, really depends. And different suburbs, there'll be different parts in different suburbs, which will be in, in very high demand um, if they're near a large building that doesn't have parking, for example. And uh, how does a business model work for Divi? I mean, how do you? What do you get out of it? We we um, we take a commission on the bookings. So what we make sure is that we only earn an income um, if there's a, a successful booking in place, um, and the owners earning an income, um, and the drivers in a, a booking where they're we're saving money on parking. Um, so all the 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 costs of uh, setting up account an account are completely free. Um, listing a space are completely free. Everything is completely free with the service. Um, and then when a booking takes place, we take a commission on that amount that comes through. So, Nick, how have you been received by people like uh, uh, Wilson Parking, for example? Um, Wilson, we we operate in a slightly different area to Wilson. Um, we look at rather than running a let's say a a largish um, car park uh, for the general public. Public, we look at uh, providing uh, people that may have one, two, three, or let's say 30 spaces in a particular area the ability to to list them um, and to to earn an income. So we're we're looking at we're we're essentially creating a plug and play solution for people that want to rent out their car spaces but don't necessarily have the ability to market them, a payment platform or a, or a booking system, um, where someone like Wilson's will take a lease over an entire part of a building and then sublease that back out. So our business model is slightly different. Um, our clients are, are slightly different, um, but we see the use in technology um, as a very important catalyst in this industry at the moment to improve efficiencies and transparency and, and generally offer a better uh, service to commuters coming into high high-demand um, areas. So how, how would your rates compare with uh, Wilson, say? Uh, well, they're generally, um, they'd be generally 30 to up to 50% cheaper in certain areas. Um, and the reason for that is that we, um, as, a, as a technology-based company, uh, we don't have all the overheads necessarily that um, a traditional company would have in relation to infrastructure and, and leases and uh, people working in particular uh, parking stations um, and also we're able to connect people very effectively through um, through our booking platform. Running this company, is it just yourself or do you have staff? Or has yeah, it we, we have um, about eight staff um, at the moment uh, and we're looking to probably double that over the next three months um, and a lot of that effort will be going into the technology side of the business um, and the sales side of the business to to 
to ensure that we have the right partnerships in place and we're working strategically alongside those partners to deliver the best um, the best product I guess we can. And what technological improvements do you would you plan to bring in to make it an even better service? Uh, well, we want to um, we want to improve some of the functionality around our corporate clients at the moment. So whether they be corporate listers who want to list you know, 30 or 50 spaces at once, making it easy for them to do that. And then from the corporate parker side, generally fleets, uh, making it easier for them to book another three or four or 20 spaces, um, having a consolidated um, invoice, um, smarter sort of reporting and things that they've requested, and then moving more into on-the-go type of booking uh, functionality through an app um, in the next, um, next six months. So the style of the thing is... Uh, mainly for people who are going to take a take a parking spot for a, a week or a month or something. But what's yep. say I've got my iPhone and I want a parking spot in Sydney. Yep. Um, are you planning an app or something that would tell me where to go and how much and bill me like Uber? Yeah, exactly. Look, that's where we see the market going um, at the moment. All of our bookings are monthly bookings, and the reason for that is that all the street parking. Um, or all-day street parking's been taken away, and there's just been a lack of new supply coming onto the market for people that need uh, monthly parking near their near their place of work. Uh, so we've had a, a strong take-up in that market, but we see um, some of the opportunities coming about now with technology to provide a very dynamic, transparent, cash, cashless, ticketless type of uh, system, um, which would be exactly like an Uber uh, type of arrangement. Do you have a particular demographic that you target? From the from the the Parkers side, it's generally people, uh, executives, uh, professionals um, who are busy. Uh, generally, they may have um, a young family, so they, um, although they they may want to catch public transport to work, um, just through the you know the pressures on time, they need their car and. A lot of our other clients uh, are fast-growing businesses who uh, they're out and about all the time, so they need that flexibility around parking. So it's really, it's really that business community that um, are um, our key clients and, and just busy professionals that need the flexibility to come and go uh, quickly and not have the hassles of trying to find a park when they're coming back into near their office. Well, Nick, thank you very much for your time. Oh, absolute pleasure. Thanks, thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, cheers. Cheers. It's like a lot of idea, the best ideas, uh, Leon. It was very simple. Absolutely. And uh, he's doing well, and so are the people in Sydney. That's right. Look forward to seeing it uh, start up in Melbourne. I would too. And now Francis Gray. Francis Gray, Japan is in recession. What does this mean for the global economy? I think uh, we're at a, a turning point, uh, intellectual turning point here, where the issues are coming into sharp distinction in terms of which way we go. So Japan set out on a big experiment under Abe. He came into power, determined to get the Japanese economy off the couch after 20 years, which is a staggering uh, amount of sitting on the couch, and get it moving. Because it was once going to be the world's biggest economy, and then it went on the couch. Uh, and uh, the experiment's gone um, in an interesting direction. It went off very well. The economy started moving. And then they put up sales tax. And lo and behold, the economy stopped moving. And I hate to say it, but all the respectable economic opinion said, don't put up sales tax because you're going to suck money out of the economy, put it back into fiscal policy. You're effectively neutralizing your expansionary monetary policy 
which Abe was using to drive the economy up. And, um, and the results were self-evident to any first-year macroeconomic student. It didn't need to run the experiment. And no, so that, that, um, that surge has spluttered out. Abe has now called an election, and I believe that's an election to stare down the Ministry of Finance, who are believed to be behind the sterilisation process of, i.e., you know, the, the sales tax push. And Ministry of Finance in Japan has strong influence over who gets elected in Japan. I might add, um, the Bank of Japan is seemingly on the other side, other side of the fence. And um, because Japan's been in this um, disastrous state for 20 years, their determination to get out is somewhat stronger than the US, European, UK determination to get out who've been in it for six years and are still under the illusion that they can get out while slashing their budgets and um, being um, uh, incredibly austerity-minded. So what does that mean? I mean, what are the prospects of Japan pulling out of this? I, I think Japan can pull out of this. I think any of us, any of these countries can pull out of the situation that they're in with the right policies. The question is, are they going to shoot themselves in the foot again? Um, so Abe will probably allow, uh, will encourage this um, monetary expansion. Uh, will they then sterilise that expansion, i.e. we pump money into the economy under monetary policy, and now we're going to put up taxes on the fiscal policy side, to increase, which effectively increases savings because they're not going to spend those taxes, which is like driving a car with one foot on the brake and the other one on the accelerator. And, and, and so the question is, will he keep his foot off the brake whilst pushing the accelerator? Will in the election his approach be, be pushed? And he came in with massive popularity, which has now been somewhat damaged, but he's still got popularity and he's calling the bluff of the Ministry of Finance. The significance of this is if Abe gets re-elected to, to, and to drive this change and he pulls it off, it's a signal to all of the austerity-minded people that their days, their numbers are up. And their numbers will be up eventually because people just get fed up with being unemployed, slow, weak economies, not going anywhere. And you know, I might have slow, weak economies where the U.S. stock market has already reached heights that it was before the recession, but it's basically on the back of a huge amount of money sloshing around, which no one wants to invest because everyone's too afraid that there's nothing to invest for. So it's, it's almost self-evident that there is an issue here of demand deficiency. To some degree, there would be a parallel uh, in a minor way with Australia currently, wouldn't there? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, we benefit from being you know, a peripheral, uh, peripheral province of China uh, with our mining uh, boom and, I might add, our education boom as well. Uh, never forget that there are export industries there and, um, and, and deeply troubled as a result. Uh, so uh, that's held our economy up. But we've got the same logic applying in Canberra of this um, narrow-minded, bigoted idea that we need austerity that you know that thrift is the best thing thrift is a value in and of itself whereas in actual fact thrift serves a purpose to provide a good living for all if if that's what it does and if thrift actually makes you poorer then you stop being thrifty and start doing the opposite and, and this is the I think institutional um, barrier to getting proper macroeconomic policies 30 years ago we needed thrift in order to slow down inflation and to get our economies on a stable track. Thrift, in a sense, has become the virtue that is now destroying itself because now we're being thrifty in the middle of a recession and for Australia, uh, well, I call it a small recession for Australia and a, and a great recession for the rest of the world, 
which means that demand is still being utterly constrained by the actions of government whilst the economies are weak and the public are unhappy. And, and I still maintain that um, here in Australia, the reason that Abbott got elected was because the economy was bad under Rudd. And the reason how it got kicked out was because the economy was seen to be bad, expected to be bad by the public because of the attack on incomes through work choices. It's all economics, um, and that Rudd became unpopular in Gerard because they didn't solve the fundamental economic problem either. And I believe that Obama's facing the same fate in the U.S. The U.S. public says, yeah, we hear that the economy's recovering a bit. We look around and see so many unemployed people and businesses, small businesses who can't sell more, big businesses who can't invest, and they think, no, this economy's not going anywhere, so we can't vote for him because you, the president, didn't bring this economy up enough uh, and the other lot caused the problem, so we don't want to vote for them, leaving them with nowhere to go. Um, here in Australia, we've got our own mini version of that, of that exercise. And you know, th- there's this nonsensical prejudice attitude. It's a prejudgment of prejudice that thrift is always good, no matter what the circumstances. Um, that, um, yeah, we should be thrifty, therefore we're going to cut expenses everywhere, therefore we're going to slow the economy down, and, and, uh, you know, and as a result, have a, have a slowdown. In their minds, the, thrift, the minds of the thrifty, they believe that being thrifty means there'll be savings, everybody will feel good, and they'll go out and invest. Well, lo and behold, people don't invest money if there's no customers coming in at all. Um, and that's the fundamental lesson of the new Keynesians. Now, with the Japan economy, what, uh, Japan in recession, what does that spell for the rest of the world? Uh, well, I, I think that you know, that that would say that, you know, world demand. So commodity prices, why are commodity prices falling? We look at China and say it's falling for that reason, but Japan's a big buyer of our commodities as well, and world commodities, you know, is not helping <laughs> to say the least. Japan is a significant economic player, and when its economy starts to fall in that manner, then world commodity markets will will suffer. Uh, we can forget that in the, in the new China age that they're still there and they're still a significant player. So it, it, basically the Japanese thing is, is, is spreading, in a sense. Uh, the gloom, whilst China is falling itself and slowing, as we've discussed previously, and if you take a look in Europe, they're, they're falling too. They're, they're sliding. Um, and I might just add one other thing to this as well. The Financial Times published a, a lovely graph showing the net withdrawals and imports of central banks around the world. So whilst most of the, um, the major economies, excluding the Europeans, were pumping money in, the Europeans were taking money out as a, over the last two years uh, as, as a central bank from their system, net position. And the net result would, of course, be that they were actually sterilising the world's efforts to pump up the world economy. Do you expect Japan will be a drag on the global economy? Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. I think that... Abe has um, learnt a lesson from what's gone on here. He got that economy moving, and then it crashed after they raised the sales tax. I think he understands now, clearly, that he cannot allow the sales tax to be driven up again, or if it is driven up, he has to um, push his monetary policy out there harder, um, and push his monetary expansion, pump the money in even harder. And I think he will do that. If he gets re-elected, he will do that. And I might add one other thing of, of, of note here is the um, uh, a senior financial um, sector administration official in the UK 
has now called for the cleanest and simplest approach to resolving all of this, which is a process by which the central bank creates money and provides that money directly to government for government to spend directly. So governments don't have to create debt in order to spend money. They just take the money created by the central bank. And this high-ranking official in the UK has called for this to happen. And it's the first time I've heard any of them call for it. And it's the immediate solution to the entire problem around the world in all of these major economies. I'll get them all moving. Francis Gray, thank you very much for your time. Okay, well, um, as uh, Francis points out, Japan's got a heap of trouble. That's right. And uh, not unlike us. Not unlike us. And, uh, well, let's take a look at this week's news. And, uh, well, there's a heap of trouble everywhere, Gary. Um, First of all, activity in China's manufacturing sector has declined for the first time since May. It's actually flatlined at 50 and British Bank HSBC's preliminary PMI for November came in at the break-even point dividing expansion and contraction, and that's actually lower than October's 50.4, and that's the weakest since May's reading of 49.4. So that's not a good sign for the world's second biggest economy, Gary. No, it's not, and uh, given the uh, amount of uh, of uh, shadow banking, I think it's, it's quite dangerous. What's also quite worrying, Gary, is that China's housing prices fell for the seventh straight month in November, and the average price of a new home in China's 100 major cities was uh, 10000 589.1, which is about $1,736 per square metre in November. That's down 0.38% from October. Falling house prices in China is a problem because China's property sector is an important part of its real economy. It accounts for something like 12 to 15% of China's GDP. And problems in Europe again. Uh, the Eurozone's already anemic manufacturing expansion has ground to a halt in November as activity in each of its three largest economies declined for the first time since mid-2013. The headline measure from data firm Markets monthly survey of purchasing managers of around 3,000 manufacturers fell from 50.1. That's down from 50.4 in October. Renewed weakness in the sector was driven by Germany, which is Eurozone's biggest economy, and Germany's PMI fell to 49.5. That's the lowest in 17 months. And activity in France and Italy's manufacturing sector has already begun to decline. Yeah, it's large. I mean, Europe's awash with money, but it's not doing anything. And what's even more worrying, of course, is that uh, Italy has slipped back into recession for the first, third time, for the third time since 2008. And Italian gross domestic product slipped 0.1% in the third quarter of 2014. And uh, we were talking about Japan earlier, and uh, Moody's has cut Japan's credit rating by one notch after rising doubts about its ability to reduce its debt level. And that downgrade comes less than two weeks before a snap general election called by the Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. And downgrade is closely linked to Abe's decision to delay a sales tax rise due to be implemented in 2015. And that would make it more difficult for Japan to cut its budget deficit by 2020. Now, the issue is that they're worried about Japan paying its debt, Gary, but Japan's public debt is twice the size of its economy. Of course, commentators are doubting whether Abe's strategy is going to revive the economy and restore the country's battered public finances. Yeah, nonetheless, he's probably going to win the election. Yeah, but uh, it's not a good sign. And uh, to Australia, and look, Gary, we can forget about Treasurer Joe Hockey's prediction of a balanced budget in 2017-18, because that's well and truly toast. That's the assessment of Deloitte Access Economics economist Richard Richardson, who's predicting bigger, bigger budget deficits across the forward estimates in the mid-year economic and fiscal outlook. In fact, he's predicting deficits as far as the eye can see. He expects the 2014-15 deficit to blow out to $34.7 billion. That's about $5 billion more than forecasts and deficits will be 10 billion larger in each of the following three years 
and that's because of a, a, another round of revenue write-downs on income tax and company tax. Yeah, the only bright point there is we're probably going to do fairly well with electrified natural gas. That's right, but the issue, to, the other issue too, is that what's driving up the deficits is increased spending on national security, military action, and uh, the inability to get the Senate on on board. And uh, you've even got dissension inside the uh, coalition government with Julie Bishop resisting quite very strongly uh, any idea of cuts to foreign aid. That's right. And uh, meanwhile, the Australian economy grew at a much slower than expected pace in the third quarter, and GDP grew at a seasonal just. 0.3%. That's a big slowdown from 0.5% in the June quarter. And that has actually put Australia in a technical income recession caused by plunging commodity prices and stagnant wages, Gary. Yeah, in fact, you know, living standard is dropping. That's right. That's right. And uh, consumer confidence, not surprisingly, has fallen 0.3%. That's according to the ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Survey, and uh, households are more concerned about their current financial position last week. Building approvals, there's been a sharp slide in the previous month to rise, and the Australian Bureau of Statistics showed the number of buildings approved rose a season just as 11.4%. So that's a promising sign, but nonetheless, um, the Reserve Bank of Australia has held the official cash rate at a record low of 2.5% for the 16th consecutive month. But with those GDP figures, Gary, we're expecting a rate cut probably in February. Glenn Stevens under considerable pressure to do exactly that. Now, according to Dun & Bradstreet's Business Expectations Survey, sales and earnings are falling, but businesses uh, at the same time are, are making upbeat sales forecasts through the fourth quarter of next year. Why, I don't know. Because um, the proportion of businesses that reported reduced sales was 20%. That's more than the 11% that had initially forecast weaker activity. Businesses that achieved an increase in sales during the third quarter fell from 43% to 38%. So, But they're still optimistic. Why? I don't know. Maybe it's Christmas and they're having a good drink. Now, uh, at the same time, the Aussie dollar is, um, is now somewhere below 85 cents and because of that it's lifted the manufacturing sector into growth for the first time since July. Uh, Australia's uh, manufacturing sector expanded in November, albeit very slightly, rising 0.7 points to 50.1. That's according to the Australian Industry Group's Performance of Manufacturing Index. And, of course, anything above 50 indicates expansion. Of course, the index was in contractionary territory since July. Now it's gone back into... um Expansion. Meanwhile, Tony Abbott is going to shrug off a poor end to the year, particularly with the Victorian elections, by switching his conversion, uh, conv- switching the conversation to tax reform with the launch of a long-awaited white paper with his government reeling from a week of self-inflicted errors and a loss of power in Victoria on Saturday, which some senior Liberals are blaming on the federal budget. The Prime Minister spent last Sunday bunkered in his Canberra office finalising the details of the tax reform discussion paper. And that paper will be released next week and it will identify problems with the tax system and uh, describe it as unfair and it will call for solutions. And it will give the PM a chance to rebadge his agenda, which is founded in recent days, and shows no sign of improving this week, which is of course the week's final, which is of course the year's final sitting week in Parliament. That's right, and there's a curious, although maybe trivial, uh, similarity to the days of Kevin Rudd, where edicts are coming out of the PM's office without consultation with the relevant minister. That's right. That's right. There, there is a pattern here. Now, uh, uh, now, despite all the rhetoric generated by all these free trade deals with Asian countries, Australia is 
business is walking away from opportunities, according to Price Waterhouse Coopers. They issued a report called Passing Us By, and it's based on a survey of more than a thousand Australian businesses, and it finds that in ten years Australia Asia will account for half the world's economic output, but only nine percent of Australian businesses are operating there. The responses show that half of Australia's biggest companies are doing business in Asia, but only twenty three percent have any staff on the ground. And according to the report, the companies that are now successful in Asia went there, arrived there up to 15 years ago. And most Australian companies, that's 65% of them, say they have no intention of upgrading their stance towards Asia in the next three years. Yeah, I'm reminded of the uh, interview we did with the uh, chief of uh, the, C- the uh, CPA. Uh, they've been in China for, what, 30 years? That's right, that's right. And they're very firmly established there. Well, yes, yes. Now, uh, to the MBN and uh, all Australians will have the National Broadband Network connected or know when they'll be connected by the 2016 election, according to Communications Minister Malcolm Turnbull. And he told the Coalition Party Room the government had improved the introduction of the MBN. And he said as of the September 2013 election, only 1% of premises have been connected. That would rise to 40% by the 2016 poll. And those who weren't connected would have an indication of their connection date by the next election. Well, that's, uh, <clears throat> that's cheerful. Let's see what happens there. Well, Ma- Malcolm's a pretty good manager, you know, in, especially in that area. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the final bit of news is that 10 Network Holdings has confirmed it's received a non-binding conditional proposals from a number of parties which could lead to a takeover. And 10 issued a statement saying um, its advisor Citigroup had received proposals which, if implemented, could result in a change of control at 10. Now, we know that pay TV operator Foxtel and US cable giant Discovery Communications signed off on a takeover bid for 10. So they're chasing it very hard. Makes for an interesting, uh, interesting look at Australian uh, free-to-air, doesn't it? That's right. And that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. And uh, next week we've got an interview with... Greg Taylor from uh, Clip, which is an online cl- receipt management service. More and more we're talking to online entrepreneurs, aren't that's we? That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's it from us this week. Uh, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe and we'll be talking to you next week.